So today's first scripture reading comes from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 to 22, and can be found on page 1174 of your pew Bibles. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Today's second scripture reading comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. And this can be found on page 1188 of your pew Bibles. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind, who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is the word of the Lord. Welcome to each one of you who are here with us today and as well those who are joining us on the Zoom. We're very thankful for this opportunity to be together. Thank you as well for our special music. Today we are going to have as a sermon our last two points in the statement of faith that about God's church and about Jesus' second coming. And whatever it comes and whatever we understand about that, it is an immense thing of how God has not allowed sin to destroy his plan in that sense that he is moving us to an eternity with him. And that's an amazing truth. Now, you remember that we have had these sermons and the first ones, in case you missed it and you would like to, listen to them. There are 
they are available on the IPC website, IPC-Zurich. And if you go there, you can listen to the Audible. I think the one on God's Word will actually lead you to the evening service, which is a YouTube uh, version of that. But um, you can listen to them. Why this is important, you see, we've talked about Almighty God, the Trinity. One God, three persons. Then we've also had a sermon about God as Father. God the Son. God the Holy Spirit. And then, of course, we had God's Holy Bible. And last week we talked about sin and salvation. These are important concepts, I think, for us to review as a church, particularly in 2022, as we begin to see that so often within our lives, and particularly in Christianity, that the terms and the meanings and the understandings of these words, even of God and salvation and sin, in many cases they're being redefined. They're being re-explained to us having a different content. And therefore, it's important that we as a church, particularly as we live vibrantly for God within 2022, that we review these things. Now today, I want to talk about church. For those of you who are able to join us in the all-church retreat in May, we also looked at some of these verses together. The essence of church. Now, If we think about church, I want you to understand, even as we begin, even though we meet in this absolutely beautiful building, that church, as the Bible describes church, is not necessarily a building, nor a physical structure. What the Bible is going to define and describe as church are the people in whom God's Spirit is alive and living because they, as Jesus explains in John chapter 3, they have been born again. Not just physically born, but born of the Spirit of God. They have been, remember the term, adopted into His family. When we talked about God as Father, the Bible describes all persons knowing Him as Father through creation. But that relationship only leads to an eventual judgment. And none of us have lived our lives by our own effort perfectly. But then the Bible also explains God as Father through adoption into His family. Remember those ideas and concepts as we confess our sins then He puts His Holy Spirit within us. And that Spirit, as it enters us, as it is described again in Ephesians, cries out, Abba, Father, claiming us for God. And then our Spirit, it says, responds back with the same term, Abba, Father, acknowledging God. And He as our Father. So church is that. Those who know Him... You know, in the Old Testament, there were two groupings of people in all of the world. There were those from the Jewish background who were God's people and all the rest. Commonly in the Bible, we'll hear the term Jewish or God's people and then Gentile. It wasn't gender, it wasn't race, it wasn't nationality in that sense. It was their place of belief. In the New Testament, 
those same two type of divisions are given. Those who are what they call believers, brothers, born again, and those who are not. And so we look at that. Well, as we think about church, where does church begin? I want us to look a minute at where it begins in the Bible, then look at how the Bible defines church, and then look at the purpose and the function of church. But let's just look at the beginning. Just as we are going to celebrate Christmas, can you imagine that? In a few weeks, it's going to be Christmas time. I don't even like to think about that because in my mind, I am preconditioned to cold and snow. Now, I know Zurich is not that cold. You have some ice and a bit of snow, and I trust it's this winter was like last winter. You all came to us as we first arrived and apologized for the cold, and we just lived 13 years in a place where winter lasts five months. We have over a meter of snow on our roof, and it's about 20 below zero for three months. This was spring. But even so, I am still concerned about Christmas coming so soon. But you see, Christmas, why do we celebrate that? Because at Christmas, remember, God, the Son, Jesus Christ, with all the prophecies, He will be born of a virgin. He will come in the town of Bethlehem. He will die on a cross. He will rise again. All of those prophecies in the Old Testament which didn't happen just at one moment, but were through his whole lifetime, that prophecy, prophecy about being born, coming unto us a child is given, unto us a son is born. And the place where he was born, that's what we celebrate in Christmas, as God the Father sent God the Son from heaven to us. And church begins in Acts 2 in this special way, where God the Father not only has sent God the Son, but remember what Jesus said? It is good that I go away, because if I go away, the Father will send to you the Holy Spirit, and He will stay until the end. And this moment is celebrated on the day of Pentecost as God the Spirit comes from heaven to dwell among His people in them, to bring them into faith, but also to lead them all the way to eternity. And here it describes that in chapter 2, the beginning. It says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly, listen, came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and filled the entire house where they were all sitting. They, they appeared as divided tongues of fire and sat on them or rested on them, filled with the Spirit, spoken tongues, and, and gave them utterance. This idea of God the Spirit coming from heaven in this special moment. And then as you go on, well, what does it do? Well, if you read the next paragraph from verses 5 all the way down to verse 11, you'll find a description again and again saying the people were from all different places. And yet the amazing thing, which is repeated three times in those verses, and everybody who heard what was going on understood. God repeats that once, twice, three times. The main thing was not just that the Spirit came, but the Spirit let every person understand. Is not that the work of God's Spirit? 
That as God begins to reveal himself to us, the Spirit of God helps us to understand what that is about and how it works. And so he came, and then it, you have at the end of that chapter, Paul, or excuse me, Peter's sermon, how he explains and goes on to them and says, this is what this is, and people then repented and turned to Christ. It says 3,000 in one day. So that's where it begins in this sense of church. And that's why we were preaching about God, the Holy Spirit, and this reality, this experience of Abba Father is so important. Now, it not only, the Bible tells us where it begins, but it also gives a definition, a description, a defining of church. The most concise and I think helpful one for me is in 1 Timothy chapter 3. There are verses 14 and 15, and it says there, Paul says, now I want to come, Timothy. Remember, Paul has discipled Timothy, and Timothy has traveled with him, and then Timothy he has sent to to pastor and to lead and guide churches. And he says to Timothy, Timothy, I want to come to you, but if I cannot come, I'm writing these words to you that you would know how to behave in, and then he gives us three terms which he describes, defines, and, and categorizes for us church. He says, in the household of God, the very first definition and partial definition of church in the New Testament that I find is the household of God. That doesn't mean that we belong to a building. It doesn't mean necessarily that we were raised in a Christian family, nor that we've gone through ritual that would call us Christian. What it says is we're part of the family of God, the household of God. God is Father. We are His children. And, and how one becomes part of that. Remember, as we talked about sin and salvation, the way that God works through His Spirit in our heart, moving us from being lost and dead to being alive and born. As Jesus says, we are reborn. We are born again. And until that moment when God has moved us into His family, you see, God, Paul defines it as part of the household of God. And then he goes on further and says it's not only the household of God, but it's the church of the living God. Which means as a person enters church, as a person interacts with the people of God who are the church, we should be able to determine that they are people who worship a living God. That this God who's alive is transforming, changing their lives. One of the most beautiful things we can ever experience in Christianity is the way to see that God takes someone from here and moves them in both a new creation, as it describes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. If any person is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. And he moves them from that, but then they're changed. I know in my own family, we saw that happen. My brother wrote back a letter. We were studying at a university and said, I went to a church with some friends on a Sunday night. And he said, and some of my friends were, he used the term saved. We didn't know exactly what he meant. And then at the end of the letter, he put P.S. Me too. That was a subtle way to... As my wife says, your family, hubby, 
are professionals in silence. And so we, we, we are that way. But what I noticed was he was different than he had been before. I, his younger brother of seven years, I could see when he came back, he was different. The purpose of his life changed. He understood God. He could pray. And so we see that the church of the living God, so it's the household of God. We need to belong to that by being born again. Two, it's the house, it's the church of the living God. And three, then it says it's the support, the pillar, that which uplifts truth. You see, a church believes certain things that are true. They're not just what we pick and choose as my truth, your truth. No, no, no. They're God's truths. And we are not the truth ourselves. We are to uphold that truth. That is where we stand. So the Bible defines church as well. But if we go back to where we were in the second chapter of Acts, it also not only gives us the origin of church, and then it defines church, but it gives us the functions of church. What church does, we as those who believe what we do. Well, here in chapter 2, as it passes on further, the next two paragraphs, in verse 42 it says, and they, that's the believers it says, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. Now, as this is written from the original, one of the things I want you to gather from that as you read it in your Bible or on your uh, portable uh, machine, whatever you use to read, if you look at that, notice that in each one they have taken the definite article. It isn't just pray. It isn't just fellowship. It is the fellowship. It is the prayer. It is the breaking of bread. It is the Apostles' Creed. In other words, it's a major feature. What is the apostles teaching? This. This is one of the functions of church. This is the way God reveals himself through his Bible, through his word, through our understanding it and God making it real within our lives. Then there's this sense of fellowship where we, because we're believers, are able, and I think we're able to come together and worship God. And I think IPC is a beautiful example we come from so many different cultural and different backgrounds. And yet we have this commonality of God. And it enables us to come and to worship together. And as you're in a small group, if you're not, I'd encourage you to participate in one where you can actually express back forth to one another how God is at work in your life. One of our past church, one of the best groups that we had were young families. And that was really exciting to sit in the background. I didn't lead it at all. They were young families, and I'm an old geezer. But I would listen to a very stirring discussion that was going on about Jesus and how God is changing my life and how God is challenging me here. And then two minutes later it was, by the way, what type of nappies or diapers do you use? Real living life with one another, but God at the center. Fellowship. Or it says the breaking of bread every time we have communion. You know, we get that verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 where Paul says, and every time you do this, you declare his death until he comes again. 
those absolute truths that we need to be reminded of. And then prayer, this way that God has given to us to communicate with him, that we would know him even deeper and more in that marvelous way. Well, so we look at that. That's what church does. So that's where it originates. That's how it it uh, is defined. And this is our four functions that need to happen in church for us as believers. But then look at these verses that were read to us from Ephesians. The purpose of this. And there's so much here, but let me just pull two things out of these verses for us. One is this, is one of the things that happens in a purpose of church, where see how it says again that a new man, he's going to create a new man in place of the two, this idea of either Jew or Gentile or unbeliever and believer, these coming together. And then he says, preach to you who are far off, and who were near, but he says, now you have become no longer strangers and aliens, or in other places he describes it as lost, and here as found. It seems that what he said, now you are no longer aliens outside of God's household, but you are fellow citizens. You belong to the household of God. And so what it says initially is this, is that, This is a part of church, and as we're in church, we realize inside our soul that we have moved from here to here. Secondly, he goes on and says, and church is being built on the foundation of the apostles' teachings and the prophets, on God's word, and that Jesus Christ himself is the chief cornerstone. Two functions, one to build and to grow. Grow us into a dwelling place of, of God and then to grow, of a temple of God and th- then to build us into that place of a dwelling place of God Almighty. So the concept is we become the place God is living. How does that happen? God's word, the teachings of the apostles and the prophets are the foundation. Jesus is the chief cornerstone. Remember at the retreat, we said at that time they were building, and the building method was the Roman arch. It wasn't post and lintel like we use today. Because there, if you have a cornerstone, it's either right or left. We love that in Austria. I remember finding a cornerstone that was back from the 900s. It was beautiful. But the chief cornerstone, you see, in the Roman arch, it's a stone at the very top of the arch. When you build it, you put bricks or sand or whatever and comes to the place where then it's all leaning in on the chief cornerstone. And he says the chief cornerstone is Christ. If you take Christ out of church, what happens? If you take the foundation out, what happens? But if the cornerstone is there and the foundations are there, it grows. It's built into a dwelling place of God. That's the purpose of church. In Second Peter, there's just one thought where it talks here about the idea that we have this inheritance, this what we have as eternal life kept in heaven for us. And God's power will be revealed at the last day. So, 
what does all this mean? Well, today we believe that God has established a church. This church is not simply a building. It is his people. It is the household of God. It's a church of the living God. It is actually a pillar and a support of truth, God's truths. It has four functions. We pray, we fellowship, we break bread, and we have the apostles' teachings. But the purpose of it is that God, Jesus, is the cornerstone. In some other places, they all describe him as the head. He holds it together, built upon the word of God and his prophecies. And then he says, and that is a great inheritance that we have, and we will inherit that, of course, at the final day. Now, I have seven minutes left to tell you about the second coming. But before I go there, let me pray. Father, I pray that each person seated here today will understand the reality is that church is so important. Not just simply the coming on Sunday, although that is important, but the fact that church is within our heart, soul, and the very depth of our eternal being. And I pray that you would help each one of us. If there's anyone among us, when they look into their heart, they do not have that confidence that they are part of God's household. That they have not experienced that Abba, Father, from your spirit, that forgiveness, that cleansing, and the cry out from the depth of their heart back to you, yes, Abba, Father. Lord, might that become real as your spirit speaks to us. Because, Lord, if we don't understand this, then the idea of you coming again is just an absolute struggle. But other, if we do, it's a tremendous eternal hope. So we ask for this in your name. Amen. The second reading that we had today, and I would just, before I jump to this, say, if you're seated with among us today, and you do not know that for certain. I would say there will be people near the piano afterwards who would be happy to pray with you. I would be happy to pray with you. Uh, we can talk at any time, any discussion. But just for a moment, let's look at this second portion of Scripture. In First Thessalonians chapter 4, it says, But now I do not want you uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you do not grieve as others do who have no hope. You see, that's that hope he was talking about. For we who believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus God will bring him to those who have fallen, bring him with those who have fallen asleep. And we declare to you a word from the Lord that we are alive and are left for the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself would descend from heaven with a cry of command and the voice of the archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first and we who are alive, we're left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds and we will always be with the Lord. Encourage one another with these words. These are incredibly encouraging words and I don't know how many interesting discussions they've ever generated. When I first married my delightful, beautiful wife, and we moved uh, 
When we went back to visit the in-laws, we were married for two years before we visited in-laws. I had to write to her and ask permission to marry her daughter, of course, but we were in missions and we didn't go back. Uh, she was really into end-time prophecy. I want to tell you there was more than one discussion over a meal that she and I didn't totally agree on. We loved each other deeply. And I'm not here today to get all of us to agree, but what I'm here to do is to point you to the fact that the Bible says this is a real truth. If you study through the New Testament, it'll shock you how often the preachers and writers of the New Testament refer to this coming of Christ. It was an essential part of their doctrine and their Bible. An essential part of their teaching that people had this expectation that he's coming. And in these words in 1 Thessalonians, as we read those, we realize that those are words which are written to believers. It begins, brothers. And then halfway through it's going to say, and those who are dead or those who are asleep in Christ will rise. And then if you read on in 1 Thessalonians, even in the next chapter, it'll go on to talk about while we people are saying there is peace and security, a sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. They will not escape. For you are not of darkness, brothers. So he's making a contrast. Brothers, you're not from the darkness. You're from the light. You have hope when he comes. But then he goes on and says, but when he comes, like those others who are, let me just read it here. For we have the faith and love and a helmet of hope of salvation for God has not destined us for wrath, but to salvation to our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us. So in the very next chapter, he's making that distinction between those who know him and those who do not. And how the return of Christ is very different for those who do and those who do not. And if we went on to Second Thessalonians, it even becomes stronger where he will talk there, right there, about how at those who do not know him, how God comes with the judgment of God in that sense because they have said no to God. They have said no to the gospel. And there are consequences for that. And um, so it comes to this point of the second coming is a truth. But the question always is, are we ready? In Matthew 24, the whole chapter, Jesus teaches on his return. And it begins by the disciples asking him a simple question. As he observes and says to them that the temple will not always stand that was at that time. And we know in AD 70 that specific temple was destroyed. But look what they say to him. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Now, two questions. How do we know when it's getting close? And two, what's the exact day? Question two is the easiest one to answer. Now, concerning the day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, not the Son, but the Father only. So if someone tells you that I think it's going to happen in 2022, on September 30, no, we're already past that, on November 10th, uh, no, when we were in Austria, I remember people going in California, 
on the mountaintop because they were convinced there was a certain afternoon he was going to come. If I remember correctly, you had a group here in Switzerland about a year later who also went to a mountaintop waiting. But he says here, no, the Father knows. But what we can know are the signs. And look what he says in those signs in chapter 24. He says, do not be alarmed. There's going to be, many will come saying, I am the Christ. And there's many, even in my lifetime, that we've seen who've come and said that. He says, and, but this is the beginning of birth pains, a kingdom against kingdom, nation against nation, famines, wars, rumors of wars, and earthquakes in various places. That's like listening to the news. They will deliver you up to be persecuted. That is happening more and more. And then, but he comes, he says, but the end endures to the end will be saved, and then the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and the end will come. In that, all I would like to say, I am an old geezer, but in my lifetime, if you look at what happened in the initial centuries, of course, the gospel went everywhere. But then after that, it was up and down, and it's actually not a very good church history moment. But if you go on from that, what actually happened is that just in the 1800s, there was an amazing movement of God. Then you had World War I for us here, World War II for us here. After World War II, if you would study what has happened in reaching of peoples around the world. Before it would be a graph like that. After World War II, it's a graph like this. What God is doing is amazing. And that's in my lifetime. Now, there are many other things which he says here, and we don't have time to go into it. All I would say is, as he comes, he says, whatever you do, be ready. And why should we be ready? Because he says that we will not know. He says there may be that moment when Jesus comes. He said two will be working in a field and one who's ready goes. The other who isn't doesn't go. Two sleeping in a bed. The one who's ready goes. The one who isn't ready doesn't go. And then he tells in all, all of chapter 25 is used as, he says, it's like the ten virgins. And they're waiting for the bridegroom to come. And five of them are prepared. And five are not. And when he comes, the five who are prepared enter. And the five who are not, do not. How? When? The when we cannot know. The how we begin to realize is getting much, much closer. Maybe to help us on the when and the close, if we go to the book of Revelation at the end, and that's a challenging book, and it has different ideas in it and shows, but if we just go to the very end and then go backwards a few chapters, and what we'll do is let's look at the end, you have the river of life coming out of the New Jerusalem, and on each side are the trees of life which have food for every all 12 months of the year, and Jesus wiping away every tear. But if you go to chapter 21, then you have this incredible time when not only that is happening in these senses, but you also have this idea of the great white throne judgment. So before you have New Jerusalem, then you go back to 21, and there you have the white throne judgment. You will have actually death and all of these things. No, you have the white throne judgment and Satan and all evil put into the pit forever. And then you, so you have that. 
And you have a new heaven and a new earth coming out in chapter 21. So the new heaven, new earth going on to the new Jerusalem, streams of water. But before that new Jerusalem, you have then in, in chapter 20, excuse me, it's the white throne judgment, death and Hades put in the lake of fire, Gog and Magog attack and are defeated. And then you have a thousand year reign. And at the end of that, Satan is released. And for a time they attack, totally defeated, put into the pit. And then you have the end. But if you go back to chapter 19, it's the marriage feast of the Lamb. So before this, and before this, and before this, you have the marriage feast of the Lamb. To which you and I are invited. To which he has said, be ready. You do not know the hour, but be ready. Let me just close with that and ask you a simple question. Are you ready? Let's pray. Father, thank you again for this time together. Thank you for your word. And I do pray for each person who is here that they might be truly ready. Keep us, Lord, with our minds and our hearts and our souls centered upon you. We worship you now and ask your blessing as we go from here. In Jesus' name. Amen.